We come this morning, I think, to what is a very piercing uh, and challenging part of God's word. And as I was uh, preparing this part of the Bible for a talk, I was reminded of that old saying, if you knew me better, you wouldn't be listening to me. But then if I knew you better, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you. So I guess as we all fall fall short, why don't we pray now and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will speak to us this morning for our strengthening, for our comfort and for our encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. In the last 12 months, I applied for a new job. And when it came to completing my CV, I don't know whether you know the section I'm going to talk about, but right down the bottom you put a little section marked hobbies or other interests. And I was really keen for this job, so I really wanted to put my best foot forward. I wasn't really sure what to put in that part. I looked through my list so far, making coffee, reading and church. And I thought, gee, that sounds a bit soft. So I added bushwalking. (laughs) I felt that this injected some much needed rugged blokiness. (laughs) However, when my wife Krista read this, she pointed out that I hadn't actually been bushwalking in the entire six years of our marriage. I couldn't fault her logic at this point. It just wasn't part of my life anymore. I realised it was a question of integrity. The nearest I'd been to the great outdoors was visiting friends in St Ives. It is, after all, very leafy there. So I decided to remove it altogether. There are many examples of claiming to be someone that you aren't. The media is full of examples of public figures who have just failed to live up to their ideals, whether it's the politician who's exploiting their position, the latest football star who's failed to be a role model, or the religious leader who's been caught in another scandal. And where would a current affair be without all those shonky salesmen? We expect that people will be consistent with who they are, don't we? We expect that they will have integrity. And as we have seen in Philippians, Paul has been very keen for them to live a life of integrity, to conduct themselves, he says, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, here in chapter 4, he makes it clear that if we have been called as God's people, then we must live as God's people. Let's pick it up at verse 1. Read with me in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. How should the Philippians stand firm exactly? The clue is there in the therefore. As a wise man once said, you have to ask what the therefore is there for, and it's there to link the ideas that have come before with the ideas that come after. In particular, it's there to remind us of what you would have looked at last week, and especially in verses 17 to 21. You will remember from verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. The Philippians are to stand firm as heavenly citizens. And this is something I think that they would have immediately grasped, and perhaps more easily than we do, for they were Roman citizens. Their society was filled with the culture of Rome. They spoke Latin, they wore Roman dress, 
they were under Roman law, and even their city was modelled so that it looked like Rome. Even though they were located somewhere in northeastern Greece, if you had asked them, their citizenship was not a matter of where their feet were planted. They would have told you that their way of life came from Rome. But now, Paul is telling them to stand firm as heavenly citizens. They are to look to the values of heaven for their way of life. What would it mean for each of us, do you think, to live as people with those heavenly values? I would suggest that it is best summarised as a gospel mindset. You will recall that Jesus is the one. He actually shows us what the true values of heaven are. Paul tells us that, doesn't he, right back in chapter 2. Jesus is the one who gives up all rank and status, all possessions and freedom, all comfort, and he humbles himself to death for our sake. Paul's point there was, of course, your attitude or your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We are to have a mindset of service. But a gospel mindset is also, I think, a heavenly mindset. Read with me there in 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, our citizenship is secure. Do you know that? Because of what Christ has done, we can be confident in our citizenship. We can eagerly await a saviour, as he says. We don't have to fearfully expect a judge. We stand secure. Our papers, so to speak, are in order. There are no further points to earn. There are no assets to prove. There are no sponsors to obtain. There are no boring ceremonies to endure, our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul is at pains for us to live as we truly are, to live as heavenly citizens. If God has, through the death of his son, welcomed us into his kingdom as heavenly citizens, then we must live authentically as his people. It's a matter of integrity. To live as a heavenly citizen will mean living out our gospel mindset. And I think that's a window, if you like, into the entire letter of Philippians. As heavenly citizens, the gospel is not only a creed, a matter of some ideas that I can just tick the boxes on. This is the whole orientation of our life. In short, it's what we give ourselves up to. Now, that's a very long introduction, isn't it? But uh, if we're to stand firm as heavenly citizens, then in verses 2 to 9... The way of life of the heavenly citizen is described in some detail for us. So firstly, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Notice here that there has been a dispute between two people which is causing concern amongst the congregation. Read verse 2 with me. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, anyone who has been in a church for more than about five minutes can work out exactly what is going on here. 
These two women who have worked side by side with Paul have had a falling out. They have not patched things up. And what we have here is now a very public dispute. We aren't told the exact cause of their conflict. I don't think it's a matter of doctrine or some sort of personal sin because I think Paul would, have, would address that as he does elsewhere. Is it, do you think, about the way that things are done? In a church that is going places, there are always bound to be disagreements. But I think it's more likely to be a personality clash. Relationships are not always smooth, even at church, are they? But Paul knows that no church can stand if there is infighting. Where there is disagreement causing concern, then Paul is prepared to name it. He's prepared to name it publicly. He appeals to a like-minded person to help these women and notice the basis for his appeal in reading in verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Did you see the basis for the appeal? It is that their names are in the book of life. It is that they are truly heavenly citizens. I think it's important to notice here that Paul is applying the idea of unity in a very personal situation. If we think about it for a moment, unity is one of those very nice ideas that all of us would agree to. But let's be honest, wouldn't it be much easier if some of those difficult, irritating Christians that each of us know all too well became missionaries somewhere overseas? Being united is about more than fellowship with those who make us feel comfortable. Theologian Karl Barth was once asked the question, is it true that one day in heaven we will again see our loved ones? To which he replied, not only the loved ones. Conflict is bound to happen if it happens even in a gem of a church like this one at Philippi, then it's bound to happen here. But the question for us is this. How will we deal with the conflict? Will it be with gossip and grumbling and backbiting? Will it be by disengaging with people at church? Or will it be by dwelling on my identity as a heavenly citizen? Paul goes on to tell us what the citizen's lifestyle will look like, a life of joy in the Lord. Read with me in verse 4. Pick it up in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. This command is so important that Paul repeats it. Joy is a very important concept for Paul, especially in Philippians, but this isn't some trite cliche for the day like smile and the world will smile with you. Paul doesn't deny the agony and the sorrow of many human experiences. Something actually more profound is at stake. Paul has already shown us what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Back in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is the most valuable thing that he has. He values Jesus over his national identity, over his prior religious experience, over his reputation, even over his family, 
and even over his own comfort. What is your pride and joy? For me, without a doubt, it would be my wife and children. They are what is most valuable to me, and so they are my source of contentment. But if I am more honest and perhaps less smugly self-righteous, then there are other priorities. There are things like career and financial security and the respect of others and my own comfort. None of these things are intrinsically wrong, I don't think. But are these things going to be of value in 30 or 40 billion years? And more to the point, am I valuing them above valuing Christ? What is your pride and joy? If we're to be people of joy, what we need to change is our affections. We need to change not what we feel or even what we think, but what we love. What Paul is saying to the congregation in Philippi is make sure you have sorted out your priorities. You are a heavenly citizen, so know what you have in Christ. Thirdly, be known for gentleness in verse 5. We read, let your gentleness be known to all. Now, when you think about it, this is almost a contradiction in terms. The gentle person isn't particularly thinking about being known. But Paul wants us to so focus on gentleness that we become known for gentleness. The word gentleness here could also be translated as forbearance, which I know is another word that we don't use very often. It basically means the idea of being generous in our estimates of others, of being slow to take offence, consistently above mere self-interest. And of course it is Jesus who is truly described in the Bible as meek and gentle. Jesus, you will remember, is the one who was prepared to confront the religious hypocrisy of his day. He was the one who spoke words of judgment. And yet he was driven, as we have seen, by a controlled desire to see the interests of others ahead of his own. None of this is, of course, to deny that some offences are so serious that they are not to be overlooked. But does gentleness characterise our relationships? What about here at church, for instance? Is it time, do you think, to drop that very pagan idea that a church should serve and fulfil me, providing the music and the teaching fellowship and subculture that I desire and instead to start thinking about how I might gently serve others using the gifts that God has given me? Do the values of our heavenly citizenship shape us to humbly serve others rather than to merely suit ourselves? Fourthly, the heavenly citizen's lifestyle is also one of prayerful dependence in verses 6 and 7. Now, these verses are, in my opinion, <laughs> the most difficult in today's passage. Uh, a number of people have specifically asked my opinion about what they mean. I suspect mostly because of my professional background as a psychiatrist. And I think as you read the verses in particular, there seems to be some uncertainty about whether anxiety is a normal part of Christian experience and perhaps more to the point, whether anxiety reflects a lack of trust in God. 
but really it isn't that important what I think, but what the scripture actually says. So let's look at it very carefully together in verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lots of tricky little concepts in there to pull apart, but let me just start by making a couple of observations. Firstly, we have to notice that what is at stake is anxiety versus persevering as a heavenly citizen. Paul knew how terrible it could be to be on the wrong end of persecution. In fact, he was about to go on trial as he was writing this for his very life. He had also been through persecution previously at Philippi. He knew exactly what the Philippians were facing. And these are exactly the kinds of anxieties that might prevent them and us from living as heavenly citizens. And yet the promise here is that we will be kept Christian, that our hearts and minds will be kept in Christ Jesus, that we will be enabled to stand firm as heavenly citizens. Second of all, it's vital that we understand very clearly the nature of the peace of God that is promised here. This peace is about a relationship. I don't think Paul is primarily speaking about a psychological state of mind, as though it is expected that we would only ever experience some kind of serenity. Peace actually means that our relationship with God has been mended. God has established his peace with us at the cross. He has welcomed us back into fellowship with him. What is it that keeps you hanging on when things fall apart? It's God's goodness to us, surely, isn't it? It's the knowledge that we are loved by God. In the language of Numbers chapter 6, which Gail read for us earlier, it is, if you like, that we are blessed by God, that we are kept by him, that we have experienced his grace, that he calls us his people. Third of all, notice that the peace of God stands guard over our hearts and minds. The image here is like a group of soldiers keeping us secure. Let me try and put this together for you. Here we have encouragement, I think, in the midst of very real concerns. In our struggle to live as heavenly citizens, we are to bring our concerns to God. Do we do that? Are we people who are prayerfully dependent on God? And I know that some of us are struggling some of us are struggling in very painful circumstances. But the question is, are we facing those challenges prayerfully? We are not promised here that every prayer is going to be answered. We are never promised that the Christian life will be without tension and struggle. But we are promised that the relationship that we have with God in Christ will hold us secure. This is the peace of God which is ours in Christ. So finally in verses 8 and 9 we have a nice summary of the passage. 
Now, if you've been asleep until this point, don't wait until the internet stuff like Warren said. Pay attention to this bit and it'll all become clear. Here we are encouraged to imitate the authentic citizen. Paul wants us to live as heavenly citizens, to be God's people in our thinking and in our behaviour. So read with me in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Notice that Paul is concerned in verse 8 with our mindset as heavenly citizens, our thinking needs to be shaped by those heavenly values. He writes, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He wants us to literally go on dwelling, go on thinking on such things. Our life is to be driven by a gospel mindset. This, of course, will involve a very profound disagreement about what we should be pursuing in life. We live in a culture whose basic philosophy, I think, is best summed up as, let us eat and be drink, for tomorrow we die. This confirms our basic human desire to put ourselves at the centre of our own lives. So are we dwelling on those things? Are we dwelling on our gospel mindset? Or are we merely citizens of this time and place? of Sydney in 2010. Secondly, Paul is concerned with our lifestyle. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And I think he's given us some good examples of that this morning. Let's sort out our disagreements. Let's be people of joy. Let's practice gentleness and let's be prayerful. He ends with this great promise. And the God of peace will be with you. To live as a heavenly citizen, it's the way of God's people. It's not just an option. It's not just for some particular class of very keen, over-enthusiastic Christian. If we are God's people, then we must live as God's people. And God in his kindness has called us his people. He's actually made us a part of his kingdom. But the question for us this morning is, is this, are we living as authentic heavenly citizens? You see, friends, this is a question of our integrity. A recurring plot device in a number of different Hollywood films is the idea of some of the lead characters developing some form of amnesia or memory loss. Now, there are so many films that have used this idea, it just keeps getting rehashed. But a few I came up with of recent examples would be some of the Jason Bourne films uh, or perhaps Memento, which had Guy Pearce from a couple of years ago, uh, or even Fifty First Dates, if Adam Sandler movies are your thing. What is missing from those films, however, is the profound sadness that comes with seeing somebody lose their memory and indeed their sense of themselves. To have an illness like that is a terrible thing which I know that some of you will know from personal experience. Friends, we must never forget who we are. We are heavenly citizens, and God is calling us this morning 
to that way of life. So why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, you know each of us intimately and personally. You know that we fail in so many ways. We thank you for your generosity to us, that you have made us heavenly citizens, that you have given us that hope of heaven. And dear Father, we pray today that you will encourage each of us to live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.